0: Before we get into John Knox, I just want to address something that may come up in some people's minds. I don't know. I haven't heard this. But if it is, I wanted to address this. And that would be, why are we doing this? And is this a distraction from the normal expositional teaching of the Word with which we practice here at the church? Why would we take the time to um, study a hero or hero of the faith? And I I would have just three quick thoughts on that. Uh, First of all, that God is the God of the Bible. And he works in men's lives today, or in past history, as much as he did in the Word of God. And if you look at the men and women in history, you see um, examples of how God used these men and women. And you see those examples brought about throughout church history, and you can even see them in today. And so, if if anything else, it brings um, the storylines of the Bible into ...into today's world where we can just kind of put our hands on it and really understand what God was doing. Uh, one of the storylines are very clear in scripture is God's delight in using the weak to advance his kingdom, the strength of his kingdom. Um, you can see that very clearly. Moses didn't want to speak on the behalf of God. He was a very meek man. David was the youngest and by all accounts the runt of the family and nobody really cared about where he was or if he was at important family meetings... Joseph was, as we're studying in Genesis, was hated by his brothers and thrown in slavery. Ruth was an alien widow in a foreign land, um, and yet God used her in the lineage of Christ. Obviously we have Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was just a very young girl, betrothed to seemingly a very simple man. Um, In the life of Christ, we have a little boy who has just a small lunch, and God uses that to feed 5,000 men. You have Jesus Christ who was born in a manger. The stories go on and on of those things. And John Knox is one of those and many have been like it where God uses very simple, um, seemingly insignificant men at their time of their birth for the great advancement of his kingdom. So that would be one reason is it takes takes what can be the temptation to look at scripture as a dry and dusty tome and move it into something that we can very much put our hands on and see and understand. Uh, My second reason that I think it's important we do this is I think it's very important that our children understand and realize the godly legacy of which they are responsible for advancing forward. And I chose John Knox specifically because um, the Welch family goes back to John Knox. I don't remember how many years, uh, generations it was ago um, that Mrs. Welch's mother could probably tell you. But it goes back, if you follow Welch, John Welch eventually comes on scene. John Welch marries Elizabeth Knox, who was the youngest daughter of Knox's second marriage, and you follow this down. Well, that's why we named Chandler, Chandler Welch, and Brendan, Brendan Knox, as we want them to clearly understand that these guys have a legacy that, that they're responsible for upholding because God's very interested in family lines and legacies, Otherwise you wouldn't have everything we have in Matthew and in many other books of the Bible where you go through these giant lines of this person begat this person, begat this person, begat this person. And you can see God's faithfulness over many, many years. And yes, there's bumps. For instance, you could see in Judah, and I think it's Genesis 38, you have a pretty good-sized bump with how Judah lives his life. And yet he still ends up in the lineage of Christ, and God is interested in uh, showing us his faithfulness. So I'm sure there's been many bumps since John Welch married Elizabeth Knox, but but there's a lineage there, and and it's important for our children to know they're just not some little child just going to be in America. There's been men and women who've laid down their lives and shed blood in order for them to have the freedom that they do have. So I think that would be important, and that's I think that's a principle that's that's straight out of scripture. Um. And in and, and your children. Um, Certainly, the Carnets. I, we don't go back, at least that I know. From what I can find, we're out of France. And wait, I don't say that very much. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's not like I go back to some somebody big. Uh, but yet, uh, but I am a spiritual son and daughter of these spiritual uh, fathers and mothers who were in previous times of history, and and your children are. We are as well, and it's good for us to know that. And my last one would simply be that the sinful tendencies – you know the, the phrase history repeats itself. History doesn't repeat itself. History moves in a line. But the sinful tendencies of man's heart manifest themselves in like ways over periods of history because the human heart hasn't changed in 6,000 years. So it has the same <coughs> tendencies of sin. So you can go back in history and go, man, why didn't they get that? Well, they're dealing with the same thing we're dealing with, a sinful human heart. And it's going to manifest itself in sinful ways. And so it's in, it's good to look at heroes of the faith because you can see how did they deal with the sinful tendencies of man's heart, whether it would be of their own or the culture around them. So I think that's a, a really important reason for, for studying these um these men and women of the faith, uh, just as you could go to Scripture and you see the sinful tendencies of man, of, of, of man's heart. It, look at Scripture. It's not full of bunch of people you want to be like. Um, in fact, a lot of the examples are, don't do that. Um, but those have manifested itself later on in history as well. So I don't think uh, this is a distraction from Scripture uh, I, I think it's a good balance. We wouldn't give ourselves fully just the study of church history. I don't think that would be a good spiritual um, balance in a spiritual diet. But just like a good physical diet, you know, you got your proteins and your carbs and all these different balances. Um, you would want. It's good to balance this. Um, so for a couple weeks, I think this is something that would be very good to do. Uh, let me also mention something about history and great men and women of the faith. And I'm speaking specifically to past history, but it very much applies to today, which is when we study them, please do not come under the assumption that you have failed or you're failing in your life or your family's life because you have not achieved the greatness or the success or the abilities or the talents of these men and women. You won't get there. God uniquely gifts people throughout history with, with a unique gift that you can, you can foster and grow the gifts God has given you and do amazing things for him. But that doesn't mean it's going to be on a national stage just because you have the same habits, maybe that a John Knox or a John Calvin did. There's only one John Knox, and there's only going to be one John Calvin, and Eric Little is a man for his time. Now God has created, and I'm going to speak about this later. God has created us for a specific time, and that doesn't mean that there's not going to be one of us or some of us in the church history books down the road as being men that God or women that God uniquely gifted for our time. But to to go back and say, well, you know, why can't why isn't God reforming all of America? America because I have a heart and passion like John Knox? Well. That's not what God has gifted you to do, and you would be better just to work out what he's gifted you to do where you're at, whether small or great, um, because that's what he has planned for you, and that's where he gets the most glory from your life. So who is John Knox? Let me, let me read my notes here. A small, frail, timid man that God raised up to be a veritable giant, possibly only rivaled by John Calvin or Martin Luther in his place in the Reformation – and we've noted before, uh, no matter your theological bent, if you're, not, if you're in the Protestant side of things as compared to the Roman Catholic side of things, you came through the Reformation. And things branched off to different places, but you came through the Reformation. So it's important to understand uh, men like John Knox and Martin Luther and John Calvin because those guys shed blood, literally, in order to uh, have the Bible that we have today and be able to have the teaching that we have today. So it's important to understand that. John Knox was, was rivaled literally only by John Calvin or Martin Luther. He was right in the middle of the Reformation. He is certainly the greatest Scotsman to ever be born. And he was planted right in the middle of the 1500s. And he's essentially a contemporary with John Calvin in that he was about the same age. And I'll speak a little more on that in just a minute. Luther was in Germany at this time. Calvin was in Switzerland. And Knox spent most of his time in England... ...and Scotland and a little bit of time in France. He was married twice. He had five children between them. First uh, first wife died. Uh, He had two sons with his first wife and he had three daughters with his second. This was a man who literally changed his entire nation from the bottom to the top and the top to the bottom... Over a fairly short period of time. It was just really about 15 to 20 years. When when Scotland took a massive shift. There was a few fires of reformation there. Already in Scotland when he came on board. But he certainly fanned it into an inferno. That um, still leaves its marks on the history books. He did this uh, in the face of opposition. And possible death. Although his enemies never were able to. Succeed in capturing him. We know very little of his early life. In fact, no one knows when he's born. Uh, and interestingly enough, another great man in, in history that God has used, George Washington Carver, nobody knows when he was born either. This is uh, seems to be an interesting trend that God uses very weak men. So there's speculation of he was born with somewhere around 1505 to 1514. That's a nine year period of time. And nobody can figure out when that was. He never mentioned it. He never writes about it. And nobody else did because he was just born to a simple man. It wasn't anything special. We don't even know where he was educated. Nobody marked down. He went to school here. He went to college here. Nobody knows that. Really, you don't know anything until he hits 25, which then you have to ask the question, well, how did you know he was 25? (laughs) And history books say, when he was 25, whenever that was, nine-year period of time, I guess he could have been a lot younger, a lot older. He was ordained a priest, and then you just have this blip in the history books. John Knox, ordained priest, and then he goes silent again. And you don't know what's happening or where he is or what's going on. And then he surfaces again, and this time he surfaces as a bodyguard. And he's carrying a, a double-fisted broadsword in defense of an itinerant preacher named George Wishart. And George Wishart was preaching in Scotland at this time. So we don't know really anything about John Knox until 1543. And we have a guess that he was converted around that time. And that's when he began his work with George Wishart. But even then, no one knows when he was converted. He shows up with John Wishart in Scotland. And Ian Murray describes Scotland as this a brutal backwater kingdom dominated by covetous, bloated clerics, as well as by a corrupt civil power. Does that remind you of America? There's a lot of similarities. The fires of Reformation were... Are there? Here or there? Here? John Wycliffe um, had been working, his disciples had been working in Scotland since the late 1300s, so about a 100 a little more than 100 years, when um, 150 years, when um, Knox shows up, Martin Luther was going full uh, full board in Germany at this time. He had already uh, posted his 95 theses. He had already begun his many writings and translations. And his writings and translations were making their way into Scotland, and so where Christopher's talk last night, uh, last week on William Tyndale, William Tyndale's Bible published in English, both of Luther's writings and Tyndale's Bible were getting smuggled in vast quantities and uh, on the, the black market into Scotland at this time. And so this is when we find John Knox. Is this Reformation is beginning to burn, and in Scotland, and he's a He's essentially a disciplee of George Wishart who is so faithful to him he wants to carry a broadsword and defend his life against those who would seek to take it. Interestingly enough, as most history uh, goes, change when it comes to theolo- when it comes to theology in a, in a government, changes normally from the bottom up. The common people had begun to really want to change in Scotland. And they wanted out from underneath the papacy, and they wanted out from Roman Catholic teachings. And obviously the church, Roman Catholic Church, and a lot of the monarchs at that time, the, the royalty, did not want to change at all. But that, that's, that's where the big conflict always comes. Is you've got this part that wants to change, this part doesn't want to change, and you have the conflict. That's where Knox hap- uh, comes into play. If you if you had to um, put the bad guy if you if we were looking at a play and you had to insert a bad guy uh, Cardinal David Beaton would be the bad guy you would insert into Knox's life he was kind of the first um, gang member he went up against the first bad dude he had to kind of go up against Cardinal David Beacon uh, was obviously in the Catholic Church hated uh, the Reformation was very corrupt and wanted to do anything he could to stamp it out So he sees George Wishart kind of roaming around the lowlands of Scotland preaching and decides, hey, this is a guy I need to take out. And so by hook and crook and a whole bunch of conspiracy, he eventually gets George Wishart captured. And uh, just before he does, uh, Wishart has uh, Knox hand over his sword and say, look, there's only, it's a famous quote, but essentially Wishart tells Knox, essentially, there's only one life that needs to be lost here, and it doesn't need to be yours. Go back, and what we find out he was doing was tutoring your pupils. Go back to teaching boys. And Knox reluctantly hands over his sword. Wishart gets captured a few days later, and then burned at the stake. Knox uh, leaves, goes back to uh, St. Andrews, and, and begins... And begins teaching. He's not there to witness uh, the burning of, essentially, that man who greatly discipled him. And this is is a very uh, key man in Knox's life, is George Wishart. George uh, Wishart died on March 1st, 1546. And uh, he's listed in Fox's Book of Martyrs. He's really one of the first... um, See, more prominent mar- martyrs in Scotland at that time. So Knox leaves Wishart. Wishart dies. Knox goes back and begins just simply teaching boys. I mean, Wishart... Uh, Knox is nothing at this time. Really, nobody knows about him. He's simply a school schoolteacher, um, for lack of a better word. And he has spent his time trying to defend George Wishart. Just kind of roaming around with this outlaw, so to speak. Well, you can't, at that time, just leave... And get out of a movement. Because Cardinal David Beacon, Beaton, the bad guy, is he isn't just interested in one man's blood, he's interested in stamping out the Reformation. Everyone knows, hey, the guy carrying the double-fisted broadsword is his bodyguard. And Knox goes back to begin teaching school, but he's essentially a marked man, as was anybody else at that time who conspired with George Wishart to preach the gospel. So, um, Knox is simply teaching, but... He's kind of a marked man. During uh, this tutoring, just teaching some boys, it became very clear he had the gift of preaching. But only the boys really knew it. And as he began to preach, the people kind of start to hear and start to gather, but it was very small, very small group. But that small group was very devoted to him, and they would say something like this. Master George Wishart spake never so plainly. Master George Wishart spake never so plainly And yet he was burned, an event that Knox will be as well. So they knew Knox is gifted like Wishart is, and we could probably see the same thing happening to Knox. But there was a – before David Beaton could get to him, there was a defining moment in his life. And I would say this is the hinge of John Knox's life where he goes from just a simple small-town tutor to the prominent national stage that he would eventually rise to. And this was the defining moment. May 29th is 1546 is the defining day. And there was a bunch of noblemen, noblemen's sons, so guys who were knights and castle owners and things like that. A bunch of their sons decided, hey, we're going to sneak into Cardinal David Beaton's castle. And they did. They snuck into him, into his room, in fact, held him at sword point and demanded that he repent ...of killing George Wishart, which he didn't. So they ran him through. Now you have a situation. They just killed a cardinal of the Roman Catholic Church. And you can imagine some of these boys going... ...hey, this has gone a little too far, boys. <laughs> I want it out. And now they're stuck. They've got themselves a castle... ...and now they've got to defend it... ...against, essentially, the Roman Catholic Church... So these guys are uh, young hotheads for the Reformation, essentially, who have killed this cardinal and taken on this castle. And they, they were called the Castilians, and they called up John Knox and said, would you come be our private chaplain? <laughs> Knox said, yes, I will be your private chaplain. He, showed, he walks into the castle, and he's there while the castle has begin, begins to be sieged. Um. Obviously, the royalty was not too pleased about this, and um, the French were sent to take them out. Uh, back then, you know, you you had your nation, but then you had other nations, and you could kind of buy other nations' armies, and you could say, hey, you know, for a certain amount of money, would you go over here and bomb that castle and get rid of those guys? So that's what they did. They hired the French. The French come, roll up to this castle, and basically go, we're going to bomb this thing and just cannon uh, cannon fire till this thing just comes down. And again, this is just a few people in there. And the French Catholics eventually overtook this castle and Knox was seized and um, following their surrender he gets put on a ship, he gets sent to France where he would be chained to an oar and inside of a galley ship and he would row for 19 months. And there's two defining moments that happened from his time in the castle. One is this uh, getting seized and sent to a galley ship because that ruined his health. He was 19 months in a cold, damp place, very poor food, very poor water, severe treatment, harsh conditions, and it ruins his health, a lot like John Calvin's health was ruined uh, for the rest of his life. He was a very timid, very weak, very frail man uh, for the rest of his life. So that would be important event number one. Number two was during his time in the castle... He was just teaching these boys again, the Castilians, but it was becoming very evident. This man has a strong gift for preaching and the whole castle wanted them, wanted uh, Knox to preach to them. But Knox would not because he didn't feel like that's what God had called him to do at the time. The whole castle gets just up in arms that Knox won't preach to them. And one of the men finally comes up and speaks for the entire castle and says this. In the name of God and of his son Jesus Christ, and in the name of these presently calling you by mouth, I charge you that you refuse not his holy vocation, but you have regard to the glory of God, the increase of Christ's kingdom, and the education, education of your brethren. That you take upon you the public office and charge of preaching, even as you look to avoid God's heavy displeasure and desire that you should multiply his graces with you. I mean, this guy just blasts Knox in public. What does Knox do? Anybody know? He flees the room crying. This is the personality of a man that God ended up using changing an entire nation. This guy, like Moses, had one nothing to do. With the public stage. Wanted nothing to do with preaching to great crowds. Wanted nothing, he had no aspirations to be great. If anything, he just wanted a small, simple life. Probably made a little miscalculation by siding with the Castilians. But uh, really wanted nothing to do with what God would end up using him for. And there's, there's an important lesson there. That when, uh, when you're weak, God, God is strong. And God desires to use those who understand their weakness... He eventually recants and says, "Okay, I will preach." And he begins preaching. And that, uh, just that time in the castle, was enough to get his name known as a great preacher. So that when he gets out of that galley slave, uh, galley rowing job in 19 months, um, and when he's released, he was released by the English. It's a weird world back then. You're in Scotland. The French come and take you, but then the English release you. So he gets released to England, and as soon as he gets released to England, he is immediately basically thrushed, thrust onto a national uh, prominence. He goes to England in 1549, and, and two years later he is requested by Edward the Sixth to preach for him at St. George's Chapel in Windsor Castle. And he, um, he had such a passion for the Word of God and was so gifted that they wanted him uh, – they, they sought to give him money – Uh, They sought to give him high positions, and he refused all of it. Uh, But Knox, even though he was uh, a very weak man, he had overcome his timidity. And he was a guy who, when he arrived on scene, small in stature, frail, uh, it was just, it wasn't like a pebble dropping into a a little pond with some ripples. Uh, He he would just, it would be like a tsunami dropping in on somebody. He, He just came in, and he didn't care Who you were or what you stood for, he was going to let you know the word of God was the only thing that was important. And if you were deviating in any way, he would let you have it. He um, went up against, as he gets into England, 1551 range, he goes up against Thomas Cronmer, which was a very notable churchman in that day who wrote uh, the Book of Common Prayer. Well, Knox just took him to task publicly about saying, you're calling people to kneel before the Lord's Supper. Well, Cronmer was saying, kneel before the Lord's Supper in an attitude of reverence. But Knox took that as, do you understand what you're teaching people to do who've just come out of Roman Catholicism? You're essentially asking them to continue worshiping falsely the relics and, and the sacraments. And so he just he just blasted them. Well, the royals... Uh, ju- uh, King Edward and all those are sitting there going, okay, we've got kind of a firebrand on our hand. Let's just ship him someplace that's a little farther out. And so they sent him toward Scotland, although not all the way into Scotland, kind of on the edge of England, uh, close to Scotland, to Berwick on the tweed And this is a little town that was across the tracks, as it were. This was a bunch of people who were ramble-rousers, and they... Um, ...were common people in many ways. And many people would have looked at Knox at that time and said, you just got demoted. You just got taken from royalty down to the peasant tavern. That would be as if going to Bill Gates and saying, Bill Gates, you're the president of Microsoft. Here's a broom. You're now the janitor. I mean, this is the extent to which he went. He It was oblivious to him. He didn't care. He was interested in going... It doesn't matter who it is or where it is. I'm a man of the gospel. I'm going to preach it to whomever will stand in front of me. And it doesn't matter to me. And begins uh, preaching. Preaching his first two converts are Elizabeth and Marjorie Bowes, who are the wife and daughter of the nearby castle. That's significant because Marjorie would become his first wife. He causes, again, a lot of ruckus with the local uh, people. And to the point that he could have been killed, and then another significant event happens in history. And 1553 comes along. Edward the Sixth dies. Anybody know their history? Who comes after Edward the Sixth? Bloody Mary shows up. Bloody Mary uh, reigned for how many years? Anybody know? She reigned for five years, only five. How many Christians did she burn at the stake? Anybody offer a guess? This is very interesting to me. A thousand? Anybody with 1,000? 1,500 go. Much more more than that. Up, up, up. She only burned 280. Just 280. Listen to this. We are appalled at Bloody Mary murdering 280 Christians. And yet thousands die on the week in America in the womb and abortion. You know, I think my father-in-law gave me a good distinction of why we're so appalled. Is you could smell the burning flesh back then. You could see the flames. They would tie gunpowder to you so that when the flames looked up, it would explode, cause more pain. You could hear that. You can't smell it here. You can't feel it here. Which I think is imperative for us as Christians. This is why you've got to get close to abortion. To smell it to feel it to, to to taste it almost and understand the atrocity that it is because that atrocity of what bloody mary was doing it was like gasoline on a small fire for the reformation it just exploded the reformation and I, it's again history doesn't repeat itself but its tendencies do and if we would if we would get close enough I think you would see a lot of the same thing happen, where you would just see a, re- a revolution against such an atrocity. So, interesting, interesting note in history here. So, Bloody Mary comes on scene. Knox is immediately basically put under uh, Hitman top ten list, and he flees. He flees to Geneva. Geneva. He ends up in Geneva, Switzerland, and he becomes very close friends with John Calvin. John Calvin, he would note, was his spiritual father. Um, this is very significant. In fact, the Geneva Study Bible, many believe, a lot of the notes and some of the translation was actually done by John Knox, although it's not noted. In 1555, this is very right in the middle of Bloody Mary's reign, um, Knox and Bloody Mary was in England. Knox goes back to Scotland, but Scotland didn't have a good queen either. They had Mary Guise, and Mary Guise was pretty close to Bloody Mary. She immediately went, Knox is back in Scotland, let's take him out. And she did anything and everything that she could, including military intervention, assassins, a number of different things to try to take him out. Uh, Knox could not be stopped by that time. He was on the national scale. Uh, His message was loud and clear, and he essentially ran a commando preaching mission where he was one step ahead of the henchmen every single time, jumping from place to place to place to place. Uh, A little romanticism, he got in a marriage, and then he flees back to Switzerland over this kind of one-year whirlwind tour of Scotland preaching. Gets back to Geneva, uh, 1559, writes what many believe would be his kind of, one of his big... Well-known writings, which is the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women. And this was a treatment he wrote up in against female tyrants. He wrote it very poorly timed. He wrote it for Bloody Mary, but it comes out after Mary's death. And Elizabeth I has come on to the, on ascended the throne, and she's Protestant, and she reads it. And needless to say, they weren't close friends. <laughs> it very much put them at odds. Um, there in, in in England, 1559, uh, Scott, uh, Knox goes back to Scotland. Mary Guise is still doing her best to stop him, but again, it just—he's a unstoppable force by this time. 1560, two very significant things happen: uh, Mary Guise dies, and uh, his first wife Marjorie dies as well. With Mary Guise's death. There is a that's – the, that's the shift. It all happens then. Scotland goes from a staunch Roman Catholic country. They make this massive shift within about a two-week period of time. Knox is asked to come doc, draft many of the founding documents of what will become a Protestant um, – Scotland, uh, a Protestant a Parliament, Scottish Parliament, that he would continue to help found over the next 12 years of his life. He's already into the last 12 years of his life. I mean, if you consider basically from 1543 is about when he's saved, 1551 uh, ish, uh, 51 ish is basically when he gets out of the galley and he starts preaching in England. You really have from 51 to about 72, and he revolutionizes. You could take it back even further. Really, fifty-one to sixty-nine years, he turns Scotland all the way upside down, and they completely shift over to a, a Protestant nation. Uh, he takes on a uh, the minister. Uh, in fifteen sixty, he also takes on as being the minister of the Church of Edinburgh, which he would maintain till he died in fifteen seventy-two. Monday, November twenty-fourth, fifteen seventy-two, uh, John Knox dies. Uh, With his second wife by his bedside, reading scripture to him, and Calvin's sermons on Ephesians. He was a great lover of Calvin's writings, especially that in Ephesians. He died very simply, without any struggle, although he was in tremendous physical pain from all of the difficulty he had suffered in the galley over those 19 months. And he would be buried two days later on the uh, south side of St. Giles, which was his church in Edinburgh. And from the commoner to the nobility, most in Edinburgh, and I'll note this in a minute, most in Edinburgh turned out to pay their respects when he was uh, death. There is the 2,000 mile an hour version of John Knox. Now let me read to you something before we get to some lessons I want to point out. And that would be the legacy he has now. What Scotland thinks of him now. Listen to this. This is uh, Douglas Bond's book, The Mighty Witness of John Calvin. Uh, I would recommend it. What of his legacy since his death in 1572? The English Parliament, listen to this, 140 years after Knox's death, this this just shows how fast we forget and why God in Scripture tells you to put down markers, to write down, to set up stones, to do these different things he told the Israelites and in principle we're to do as well, to remind ourselves of what God has done because we very quickly forget. 140 years after Knox's death, um, the English parliament condemned his books to public burning. 1739, George Whitfield in America was ridiculed for preaching doctrine borrowed from the Kirk of Knox. Kirk meaning Church of Knox. Perhaps more than any other, he has been portrayed as the infant terrible of Calvinism and has been characterized, even today, in books and film and at his own house, now a museum, as a blustering fanatic moderns to miss him as a misnomist for his untimely treatise against female monarchs and for his unflinching stand before charming Mary Queen of Scots denouncing her sins and calling her to print. He fought against Mary Queen of Scots who was after Mary Guise in Scotland for the last 12 years of his life. He would just stand in front of her and let her have it leaving her in tears most of the time and yet he was of such power she couldn't touch him. 1972, the 400th anniversary of his death 400th anniversary, 1972 it was decided that such a man as Knox was an inappropriate subject to commemorate on a Scottish postage stamp Scotland is who they are because of Knox as a crowning blow, the Edinburgh Town Council ordered the removal of the stone marking his grave, relegating his earthly resting place to obscurity under a variously numbered parking stall He's he's under parking stall number 23, and that's all that marks where Knox is buried In my most recent visit, this is uh, Douglas Bond speaking, to Edinburgh, the JK, once legible on a small square marker, was obliterated. As faithless Israel resented Jeremiah's prophecy of doom and destruction for her whoredom against the Lord, so for the most part, Scotland has resented the life and ministry of John Knox. In closing here, quickly as we close, some, some things I want to point out about Knox's life that I think... Uh, well applies to us and let's go to scripture first corinthians 7 17 through 24 first corinthians 7 17 through 24 and as you're flipping i'll be reading only let each person lead the life that the lord has assigned to him and to which god has called him this is my rule and all the churches was any anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise... He who was free when, when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. You've heard the term, bloom where you are planted. And this would be a good lesson from Knox's life. Knox sought to bloom wherever God had him planted at that time. And in a day and age, young people hear this, in a day and age with the technology available at our fingertips it is very easy to slip into wanting to impact those that are outside where you've been planted you can and uh, hear me clearly on this i'm not against impacting someone in bongo bongo or whatever that that hears or reads or listens or watches something that you posted on the internet very with all the various means to do so, I'm not against that. What I'm saying is, is that it is it is sometimes easy to neglect where you've been planted now, in desire to be something else for someone else who will never meet you or know you. Again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not against God using your ministry, but Knox was a man who, hey, I. I just have aspirations to be what God has called me to be right here. And it's just a simple tutor. I'm going to be a tutor. Row in a galley, I'll do that. You want me to preach, I'll preach. He just wanted to do what God wanted him to do. And he wanted to do it right where he was. And he was always thinking, right here, right now. And and God uses those type of men and women because... They're focused on the right thing. And then normally those ministries are advanced further out, and I'm all for that. But it has to start from here and go out, not from out and into here. And that's one of the reasons that the Church of America is weak, is we like to go out and we neglect the the daily discipleship, reading of the Word, family worship, evangelism in your own town, just ministering to those that God has placed in your life right here rather than spending all our time Trying to do good things, but it's a subtle temptation, and you, you might be might be ill timed with the use of your time. So that God has planted you in a specific place, as He planted Knox, and I would encourage you use the gifts and skills right where you're at with the people, with your next door neighbors, with your uh, with your employees. Use those um, relationships, and if God wants to build that, I'm all for that. But in reverse. As not normally how God works those things out. In fact, I don't see that at all in Scripture. Uh, That would be one lesson learned. Bloom where you're planted. Number two would be Matthew 6.33, which you can flip to, but we all know, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Seek to know God and walk with Him in order that when He brings about an unexpected twist in your life, you'll be ready to respond to that situation in a way that glorifies Him. Life is really just a... It's just a journey of a bunch of unexpected, twisted turns. It's like somebody put you on a roller coaster and blindfolded your eyes. And you're just holding on for the ride, not going, am I going down, i am going up, going left or right? You rarely know, you know, what's going to happen. You, don't, you plan and stuff, but tomorrow you might wake up and this has happened or that has happened or any number of things. Obviously, we don't know the future. And we a lot of times we want to seek to know the future and seek to know answers to why and what's coming, when what God really is interested in is seek Me, and be like My Son, so that when I bring about that unexpected twist, hey, I'm just tutoring these boys. Whoa, I'm now in a, I'm in a castle that's being besieged. That's a twist. Whoa, I'm in a, I'm in a damp dark place rowing. That's a twist. Things that were unexpected, he was a man of the Lord, and he simply sought to be um, radiant for Christ, and, and was ready to, really the message being, he was ready to be radiant for Christ wherever God moved him. So seek the Lord first, and then you get, uh, you'll be ready for whatever God brings to you. And you'll be able to have that testimony, you know, and we always want a good testimony for the sufferings and the difficulties that God takes us through in our life. But if you're not ready for it, your, your testimony won't be what you like, and you're always uh, instead of being, being concerned about the testimony, be concerned about, am I a man or woman of God? And then the testimony will take care of itself. Um, for the, out, of, out of time, I'll mention these two verses. For a third one I would think would be a good lesson for us to learn is Proverbs 18.24 and 1 Corinthians 15.33. Both of those are talking about friends. Um, Proverbs 18.24, a friend who has friends must show himself friendly. 1 Corinthians 15.33, Bad company corrupts good morals. Watch out who your friends are. Uh, because Calvin had, he went for the friends who were not really concerned about anything but the matters of Jesus Christ. And God used those men very strongly in his life. John Calvin being one and George Wishart being one. And there's many others. But I would encourage you, uh, young people, really watch uh, watch your friends Two more. Matthew ten twenty eight, And let me read that for you. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in, in hell. Um, easy to say. Hard to work out. But man, Knox was a man who had little to no fear of man. And we would, be, we would be very wise to emulate that. When he was on a galley, he, the French Catholics loved to mock him and sought to get him to worship these whatever, statues, different things of that nature. And one time, they had his hands tied and he wouldn't do it. So they shoved the, fa- the, the idol of Mary into his hands and then shoved it into his face. What did Knox do? As soon as they let him go, he threw it overboard and said, "If she can swim, let her swim." <laughs> and they never forced him again on that galley or anybody else to um, to worship Mary. Uh, Knox just didn't care. I'm going to do boldly what God tells me to do, and if that, it, I, I'm a I'm a marked man by God for a time of death, not by anybody else, and. We could say yeah, probably a little wiser about that. I mean, that probably hurt a little bit and probably beat him. But that's the type of man he was, and that's what I want to point out: is is he was a man who just had an unflinching uh, fear of God as compared to a fear of man. And fifteen and just a few examples of that: fifteen fifty one, when he was in England, uh, he was the celebrity among the royals, and they tried to get him with lucrative contracts or with lofty positions to stay in England. And it was said of him that no money could buy John Knox. He could not be bought to do whatever you wanted him to do. He had a fear of God alone. Um, When he went to uh, Calvin in Germany – in Switzerland, Calvin urged him to take a pastorate in Frankfurt, Germany during his first time with Calvin there. He walked into that pastorate. It was English-speaking, and they were Anglican. And he thought, well, wow, we have way too many similarities to the Catholic Church. And he let him have it, and they eventually tried to take his life. I mean the man just didn't have any any qualms about saying, the scripture says this, and you're not doing it. And let me just point that out to you. And they, they didn't like that at all. 1555, um, uh, when he goes back. He goes back in the middle of Bloody Mary's reign. Goes back in the Scotland. Mary Guy is trying to take his life. I mean, he's publicly known as calling uh, Bloody Mary a, a Jezebel and just ripping what she's doing up and down. He was not afraid to just call a spade a spade, and not saying and not afraid to say, "You're wrong. You're not according to Scripture." Earl Morton, who was at his grave. Uh, is said to have said, "There lies when it, when they put him into the grave." Is said to have said, "There lies one who in his life never feared the face of man," and and it's well documented that he did not. All that to say for us is, do not us we cannot fear, especially in our day and age, to speak the truth. And there's so much out there uh, in terms of. Um, The attack on marriage, the attack on women, the attack on children, the family, men. Across the board, we have a nation that is much like what these great reformers went through. And we cannot be afraid to say, sin is sin. And let me show you that in scripture, because that's the loving thing to do. It really is. Otherwise, we're we're letting them go off the cliff into hell. Or would you rather say, let me show you. This is what Scripture says. Let me walk you through why. And let God take care of um, whatever may happen. Although, it, it, pretty clear in Scripture, He's looking for a people that will do that. And He will preserve them, or at least a portion of them, over over history. The last one I would mention in closing is Philippians one twenty. This is Paul's admonition that whether by life or death... Uh, His desire would be that the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. Philippians 1 verse 20 As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. I mentioned that when Knox died in 1572 most of the nobles and common people of Edinburgh the town where he was at showed up for his funeral. Few if at all with the exception of maybe one, mentioned his death in the history books, meaning the few of the nobles at that time. It wasn't like Mary Queen of Scots was writing, Yes, Knox is gone, or anybody else at that time was, was just uh, his enemies being overjoyed that he was dead, or his followers across the nation uh, moaning, bemoaning the fact that he was gone. It was neither. It was as if Edinburgh knew he was gone and nobody else did. The reason being is, and let me quote this, that Knox was of what, what his sole focus was the, was the gospel of Jesus Christ. He cared little for himself and he only cared for his message. And, and that's what they had to deal with. It's not him, they had to deal with his message. And let me quote Knox's death was barely noticed at the time. Although his funeral was attended by the nobles of Scotland, no major politician or diplomat mentioned his death in their letters that survive. Mary Queen of Scots was made made only two brief references to him in her letters. What the rulers feared, however, were Knox's ideas more than Knox himself. And a lot of times, in uh, for any of us, we want to be. It's not our ideas we want to be known for as much as it's it's, it's you know me. I want you to know hey that quote. attach my name at the end of it or, or whatever it would be, but Knox was of the opinion. I don't, I don't care about me. I'm interested in my message. And that's what they ended up having to really combat. Uh, and why they probably don't care of Knox today. And yet they're still fighting his message. Because he was interested in proclaiming his message. And cared little for himself. And that's really what they had to deal with. His ideas. So uh, we, we, we must be about the gospel. Little fear of man. Uh, seek godly friendships. Uh, seek to know God in order that you'll be prepared to have a good testimony when the twists and turns of life come along. And then uh, lastly, understanding that we must bloom over our planet. So a quick version of John Knox, but I trust that we can see the way God used this man and some of the things that we can take and apply in our own lives today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time. Thank you for um, the patience of those that are here as we've gone a little bit over and pray that you would grant us grace, Father, to apply uh, the truths of Scripture manifested in John Knox's life. Thank you for him, and we pray, Lord, that you would uh, let us be bold in the proclamation of the gospel and the proclamation of truth in this land today. I pray, Father, for our time of uh, fellowship now, that it would be a sweet and encouraging time to the, the souls of those that are here. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.